Yeah. All right, so I have a question for you. Two-part question, kind of. Um, so do you believe that, um, so after Job 42, would Job have spoken differently of himself earlier in the book? And that's the first part. And then how does Job fit in, or how do you relate? Because one passage in the New Testament that kept coming to mind too, with some of the language of Job earlier in the book, is the language of, um, of Luke 18 and the Pharisee and the tax collector and Jesus talking about our, those who trusted in their own righteousness. Um, and then he spoke of fasting, tithing, um, and then the other, you know, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, he was the one who went home justified rather than the other. So, so just how, um, how Job relates into that. Um, but also if he would have spoken differently um, after Job 42 of himself than he did before. Okay, well, let's take that first part, second part first. Um, having said what he said, repenting in dust and ashes, admitting that he was speaking without understanding and so forth, I, I think, yeah, he would have, if he had it to do over again, he would do it differently. Um, we don't really know whether Job would have ever gotten, been informed about what happened with Satan and the challenge in, you know, in uh, chapters one and two. So, um, but certainly, so about the vindication part, maybe he never knew that. So maybe he was left always with, I don't, I'm puzzled as to why this, but I do know that I have grown through it and so he would have spoken differently afterwards. You know, trying to sort out sinful self-justification and the honest acknowledgement of the fruit of grace in our lives and sometimes necessarily defending ourselves against, let's say, the slanders or the false accusations of others, that's always... You know, I think we always want to default to brokenness. And although I didn't say it, you know, anytime we're, con well, it might even be in this odds and ends section. It's always a good idea to start when you experience this affliction with the notion that it could be corrective chastening. So what have I done is a good first question. And sometimes there are some pretty obvious things. You know, my famous example, Dennis Johnson and I, who, he was a professor uh, at Westminster Seminary, wonderful man. We were freshmen. Well, we lived together as seniors at Westmont College. And coming into the last part of the uh, year, you know, we got crunched with studies and everything and fell behind and started using the Lord's Day for a study session. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a terrible sin, but we were both sinning against conscience. We were both convinced at that point that the Lord's Day was the Lord's Day. So to keep up, and then within a day or two of each other, we both were sick for about a week, and we fell farther behind than we'd been before. Well, we both concluded that in part, that was the Lord giving us a smack for stealing His time for our own purposes. Um, so... And, you know, when you think about proximate causes and effects, 
if you do stupid things and you reap the consequences of them, then it would be smart to stop doing those things. But you might end up with as much self-understanding and honesty as you can to say, I don't see this as chastening, therefore, God, do with me whatever you want to do, whatever lesson you have to teach me. So, you know, in terms of the, I mean, it's pretty clear in, in the Luke passage, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And we certainly don't want to be pharisaical in that sense. But I think to, to flee from that so far that you never acknowledge or you're never willing to I remember reading about Calvin one time. It's the, the author was observing that when Calvin was personally attacked, he didn't defend himself. If he was attacked in such a way as his ministry was undermined, then he would defend himself. Now, whether that's true across the board, but that was a good reminder. Okay, what people think about me is of no consequence. But if what they think about me hinders my ability to serve the people of God, then that's when, if it's unjust, I... Could, could and should defend myself. So how you balance those, that's, there's no one size fits all on that, but it's good to connect those two in our mind. Yeah, Matt? Uh, oh, behind, the mic's coming from behind. Thank you, this is a testimony. Uh, I've been in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church except for three years for the last 57 years. And uh, I have under five pastors and exposure, general assembly level, pre-assembly pre conferences and so forth. And this is my first experience where the book of Job was really tackled and unpacked. Hmm. And um, this is a, a salutary experience for me. I don't know how much my testimony harmonizes with others but that's the way it, that's what I've experienced in Orthodox Presbyterian Church and I think in the book of Job I think Rogers demonstrated to us this week that the book of Job has a great deal to say to us mm. and I thank you very much my brother for uh, your ministry mm. it, uh, well bro <laughs> It's a great joy to me, Mac, to have seen you here. Uh, you may not be the last person on earth I would have expected to be here this week, but you were not on my list of people. So just to be with you and, uh, you know, Mac and I are, they're rare examples, sad to say, but of brothers who clashed seriously early on and learn some humility along the way. And I love you, my brother. And so if you, any of you out there, you think you need to mend some fences, but you think the other guy's wrong for theological reasons, you know, that justifies everything. Um, things can be fixed. So thank you that, that uh, I'm glad. Jason. Oh, sorry. Um, I had two questions. Back to Elihu. Still not or Elihu is Eli yeah, prefer. whatever you want to call it. <laughs> that fella. That so guy. Still would love to hear a little bit more about that. Because I even in forty two, God rebukes the three, doesn't mention him. 
So it really does feel like an insertion point. But what he says, I think, I think the way that you've set it up resonates with me more than anything else I've read on that, that it's a setup for. So is he kind of a John the Baptist type of a thing? Or I would love to get a little bit more depth on your study there. And then a quickie unrelated. Um, here's Job, patriarch, but he's not on the line of Abraham. We don't really hear about all of his family after this book, but obviously a strong believer, probably raised a bunch of strong believers. And then I think of Melchizedek mentioned in the book of Hebrews over here, King of Salem. He's big and important, but he's not in the line of Abraham and the 12 tribes. So just how much Christianity do you think was going on all in that region outside of what we have in the, in the actual revealed scripture? I'd be very interested to hear your take on that. Well, and I don't have much of a take on that. I kind of alluded to it, but it is interesting that outside the Abrahamic mainstream, there are these branches, at least early on in that patriarchal period, I mean, it's even, you know, when you get references, again, how many of these are kind of inserted by Moses in writing the story and how much of it was there? But like Abimelech, you know, when he's talking to Abram about how, did, how could you behave this way and, and the Lord is the one who knows that I... So, yeah, it's kind of tantalizing, but there's not a whole lot to go on. And there's probably Old Testament theologians that have thought this through in depth. Maybe they've even read books, written books on it. But all I can kind of do is shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, it's there and it's interesting. Uh, certainly that it wasn't isolated and confined to the covenantal line. But certainly that's the, the main channel, but you do get these outliers. So, um, yeah, what more to say about Elihu? Um, yeah, I, I do think seeing him as a transitional figure, so he's not with the three, and he's preparing the soil, although, again, the Lord doesn't really say anything. In a sense, everything's already been said about the Lord amongst all of the speakers in the beginning, and now God just kind of reinforces his transcendence, his sovereignty, his wisdom. And because Job has a heart for God, we'd say he's a regenerate person, then he responds to that revelation of God. But the content all kind of depends on everything that's been said up to that point. But as I say, there are, there are scholars who take a, a different view, but on balance, I think seeing him as not one of the three, but rather on God's side, but as a preparation, uh, you know, like John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, that's about the best I can do. Uh, who was over, who, uh, over there, Jerry? Yeah, just, uh, I just had a comment and, you know, thinking about Job again, I think C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our good fortune, in our times of real blessing, but shouts to us in, in times of suffering. And I just, I really think if you look at Job being in the canon, and some people have some tough trials, you can always point them to that book. I mean, really, it's just, it just stands out, the d degree of physical suffering and, 
emotional problems that he had and trying to understand what's going on. And I think it, it, it again, just shows how powerful that is for pastoral work and uh, trying to help people, you know, face adversity. Yeah. So just a, a thought, I just had, was thinking about that. What, what has struck me, though, about that is that, uh, you know, the story of Job makes him immediately relevant. But I mean, if you, if you take somebody who's buried in sorrow and you say, why don't you go home and read the book of Job? <laughs> they're going to, after the first two chapters, they're going to, because you get into that middle section and it's just, you're tumbling into, so that's one reason why I decided, when I first, uh, you know, tried to, to do a short introduction to Job or overview of Job, you know, people sort of smile and say, you know, how are you going to get 42 chapters into six messages or eight messages or 10 messages? And because you can bore into the details and kind of get lost. So it's kind of like the advice that people often give, you know, they, uh, somebody who's interested in Christianity and they send them to the Gospel of John. Well, there's some great verses in the Gospel of John that are immediately transparently helpful, but there's an awful lot in John that even a seasoned believer has to wrestle with to really understand what's going on. So, But anyway, uh, and that may be why we don't hear more sermons on Job as a whole, going back to Mac's point, is because it's a, it's a kind of a unmanageable beast. Um, anyway, enough of me. Another question over here? Or comment? Oh, thank you very much. I received a lot of blessing through the entire U.S. session. But um, when I was reading Job a while ago, of course, very hard to understand fully. But in, uh, I want to know the, what's the conclusion, <laughs> how the Job's misery ended, and how uh, his suffering will be resolved by God. And then uh, I personally. He now he see like uh, you the verses. Uh, he really I understood as a fear of the Lord, fear of God, mm. with a genuine love, and he really I got I found the conclusion that that way. But what if um, the Bible Job's book of Job ended without later of his life be blessed abundantly? If that part is omitted. <laughs> How did you think? Why that verse has to be added? Because people suffering, like uh, they have no earthly reward immediately in their own life. They still to the end suffer. Uh, because I understand this was like, uh, mm, but in the in the earthly term, are we expecting like uh, when you, because I don't want to misunderstand the book of Job. When you suffer as a God training, if you tested, God vindicate your God vindicated everything, and as a result, you will be your problem will be resolved, and you will be much, much more blessed than before. People, those things not happen earthly level, mm. and what if if that thing happened, that a person might think that their life would be just uh, like punished by God. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want I want to hear from your answer in, yeah. in the in the perspective. Well, so could I boil that down to, you know, what do we do with happy endings or should we expect happy endings? Uh, it is true that in this life, 
Um, sometimes trials end and there's a restoration to the situation before, or in Job's case, something even better. But there are many instances where the suffering continues to the end of a person's life. And do we need a happy ending in order to learn the lesson? And, and I would say no, because the happy ending that we really are looking for, back to Hebrews 11 and a little bit of chapter 12, is that eternity. Um, and uh, so we don't want to trivialize earthly blessings given, withdrawn, and restored, or increased, but we are, I mean, Joe says it right at the beginning, right? Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So even without the happy ending, we can learn to trust God more deeply. And as I say, many suffering Christians suffer right through to the end. And maybe even things get worse and worse and worse till the end. I mean, you think of some of the martyrs, you know, falsely accused, lied about, condemned, and then executed. There's no happy ending in this life for them. Were they, did they make a colossal mistake? No, not at all. Blessed are those who are faithful unto death. But there's eternity. And, you know, when you, when you think about, I mean, we all talk about eternity, but if you think about it, so here's your lifetime, and eternity goes out there and out the door and up the hill and down the road and down towards L.A., and then it goes on up towards Sacramento, and eternity just continues. And that blessedness is there for every faithful servant of the Lord, no matter what our particular providential lot in life is here. So Job gets a happy ending, but the lesson is already learned with or without the happy ending. Yeah, good, good. Any other questions or comments? Way in the back, Evan. Yeah, so my, oh, there's a lot, okay. Uh, my question is, in, in your, like just in your life, what, what have you found to be the most helpful for studying the wisdom literature like maybe books or people or, yeah. Well, as I say, most of the really useful stuff I learned came from Bruce Walke, uh, and he's written a number of books. Um, since I was a student and after he developed all of his course material, Palmer Robertson wrote Christ in the Covenants or the Christ of the Covenants, then he wrote Christ in the Prophets, Christ in the Psalms. And uh, uh, I like Walter Kaiser a lot, too, on the wisdom literature. Uh, he taught at um, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and then at Gordon-Conwell. So there are some people out there. Again, I'm not like an academic expert in the field, and I'm less aware of the newer literature than I am the older uh, or the intermediate literature, so, but, uh, and I'm trying to think, Walke wrote uh, the um, New International Old Testament Commentary on the, Saul, on the Proverbs, two volumes, a big bruiser, and so if you can get a hold of that from a library, it costs a fortune to buy, but if you could get a hold of a copy and read his introduction to the Proverbs, I think you would get some of that same material kind of orienting you to the wisdom literature. Um, uh, Kaiser's book, Toward an Old Testament Theology, 
has a section on what he calls the sapiential era, that is the era of Solomon and the other wise men and stuff. So um, there's, some, there's some good stuff out there that's pretty accessible, um, if that helps. Uh-huh. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Paul. Okay. I'll admit that I, I wasn't here for every session, so if you answer this in one of them, just tell me, go back, listen to the lectures, and I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with Job 28, um, I've studied it recently, and it does seem a little out of place, coming sort of out of nowhere. And especially the last verse, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding, which is a theme that you see again in the Proverbs and throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. So first, do you have thoughts on how Job 28 fits in with the rest of the book? And then could you maybe elaborate on the fear of the Lord and how that relates to saving faith and other themes we see throughout the Bible? Okay. Yeah, as far as the placement of 28, uh, it is, it's kind of a, uh, I mean, it seems more self-contained, and there are discussions about, you know, we, d we don't know in the creation of the book of Job, because it's not, as far as we know, written by Job, but it's about Job, so who wrote it, and is there and people argue that there's evidence of later editorial work. How, you know, and the critics, they spend all their time speculating about that. From our standpoint, coming at it from the, the presupposition about canon, we have to take it in its final form. But how much of it was original story? Who did the writing? And then was that later, how much it was modified? That There's no real... You know, you can fiddle with internal evidence or what you take to be internal evidence, but there's no external evidence about that process. So it's kind of hard to say. Could it have been a sort of a standalone thing that was then put in there? All we know is the Holy Spirit wanted it to be there. Um, it wasn't called chapter 28, but it is now. Uh, but to your point, I did make a little reference there. The fear of the Lord, if you look at Deuteronomy well, uh, it's worth answering, it's worth answering. Um, uh, let me just find my... I think a good definition of the fear of the Lord comes up in Deuteronomy... Um, Ten, say, um, well, the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 12, um, what does the Lord require of you but that you fear the Lord your God to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about circumcising your heart. So the fear of the Lord is the fruit of regeneration, as we would say saving faith is the fruit of regeneration. God 
gives us a new heart, and it begins to express itself in faith. Now, saving faith, as we usually talk about it, is Christocentric, explicitly so. In this Old Covenant expression, it includes knowing God as our God, so there's the covenant, loving Him, fearing Him, obeying His commandments, serving Him, so it's, it's kind of a compounded uh, experience. And as we parse it out, faith would mean, it, you know, it would carry hope and love along with it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll seek first the kingdom of God. So you can kind of bring all of those aspects out of the idea. So it's not something that comes out of us, uh, you know, out of our flesh, but out of the regenerating work of the Spirit. So they're really kind of parallel. And you can, the fear of the Lord sheds light on the meaning of saving faith and the Christocentric idea of saving faith sheds light on the fear of the Lord in terms of who this Lord is. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, but He's also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ. So they can kind of, the two, they're parallel and they can kind of influence our understanding of one another. But both of them, as I said in that last lecture, are growing, maturing experiences of union and communion with this God in its Old Covenant manifestation and then in its post-Messianic New Covenant manifestation. And there the Holy Spirit comes to the forefront in the way in which we commune with this God. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Whose point? Oh, there. Okay, sorry. Just along those, the same subject, why does it say the fear? Why? Because it sounds like we should be scared of God. Is it fear of punishment and we do all these things? What, why does it, what's the Hebrew word of why does it use fear? I think of fear as of being scared. Yeah, and that's the way we normally think of it. Part of it is probably just connotations of the English word. I think it's more along the lines of awe, recognizing the creator-creature distinction and then the gracious relationship between the creator who is the, our redeemer. And it does include fear. Um, you know, if we transgress, uh, particularly with impunity, then we ought to fear the, the judgment of God. And he certainly warns the wicked that judgment is coming but it can coexist with, um, with love and, and affection. And, you know, so when you think about if you, you know, a lot of us maybe didn't have great relationships with our parents, but if you did, you could have that respect, reverence, and even fear, and yet you could, you could go to them and be as close and as intimate. You know, the fear didn't drive you away. So I, I think part of it's just to think more broadly of what would be involved in uh, a reverential, awe-controlled relationship to God, which could include what we would think of fear, um, fear of consequences for bad behavior or whatever, but not just 
you need to be afraid of God, and that's the sum total of your relationship with God, which sadly is often what that maybe conveys if it's not adequately expressed. I mean, I have come over the years to spend a lot of time putting the concept of the fear of the Lord before the congregation with this kind of comprehensive understanding so that we can kind of rescue it from somebody reading fear of the Lord and saying, oh, I don't want any of that. And then they think, well, so then what's wrong with me? Or limiting it just to a fear of punishment. And in that passage then, and I didn't read the end of the the chapter, but again, it talks about fearing the Lord, um, you know, swearing by His name alone. That's a, that's a public dimension of fearing the Lord, you know, that you're going to be honest and live with integrity and everything you say is going to be a reflection of God holding you accountable for the commitments that you make and so forth, as well as love, hope, service, and so forth. So, yeah, that second half of Deuteronomy 10 and then some in 30, chapter 30 gives you as good a definition of of the fear of the Lord that I know. And uh, and it's objectified in the Word of God. I'm just thinking with what's left of my three-ounce brain of uh, Psalm 19. Oh, come on, where is it here? You ever notice how sometimes you open the Bible and you're looking for a chapter and you go right to it, bingo, and other times you have to turn every stinking page before you get to it? So in the second half, you know, we know the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true. So when you get to the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, there the fear of the Lord is parallel to law of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord. So we're not talking about the experience of the fear of the Lord, but the way in which the fear of the Lord is presented in the words of Scripture or of the Torah at this point. In the same sense that we sometimes talk about the faith, and we mean the content of our faith, not the act of believing. So here in Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is the content of what we believe from the Word of God, not the act of believing, for whatever that's worth. But I remember when somebody pointed that out to me years ago, I went, oh yeah, that's right. Never thought of it that way. David. In Job 42, he mentions his ears have heard of the Lord and then, and my eyes have now seen. And you made it clear that we shouldn't take that literally. A new personal immediacy to the presence of God. I think you were referring to having just read that. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about how you exegeted that? Since it could be very simplistic, Job saw God and... Well, yeah, and, and if that's a theophany that is described, then he did see God in the same way Moses did, let's say, or Ezekiel, although Ezekiel's a vision, so was that a vision before his physical eyes or what? So, um, but I think the main point in contrasting it with the hearing of the ears is the idea of distance versus immediacy, not physical sensory experience versus uh, something more intellectual or even visionary. 
So perhaps as he, you know, if that's, if that's a literal physical storm that's being described, and I, I think it is, or at least it moves in the description from Elihu's speech to the reality that Job has a direct physical, visual encounter uh, with the Lord. But again, I think the emphasis is on immediacy rather than distance. And certainly no, you know, just like with the other theophanies, the point is not that he saw some form that they can then be reproduced in memory or in some other way that would be a violation of the, the second commandment concept. Paul. Peter, Paul. Peter, get over there and serve Paul. Um, to those points, and, and I think you said it before, during your talks as well, um, that Job, I, I, for me at least, reading Job um, growing up, it, you know, the concepts were clear. Um, it seemed as though it was an awful long book for a very clear like you're going to suffer and God's bringing you through this um, not until in the last few years reading through Job and even not even necessarily a commentary but a, like just a devotional thing with a few comments here and there that I was like wow this, it just makes more sense that you 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 feel all of those comments that Job you know that Job is pleading and even you know the the, his friends, like the things that they're saying, you know, these are these are things that we've heard and things that we've felt, and um, we don't really, it doesn't really hit you until you've actually gone through some suffering. Yeah. Um, and to just these last few comments, um, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, like Paul was saying that 28 and the fear of the Lord seems to be sort of a standalone thing, but if you think of your comment regarding children fearing your parents, you know, you have that awe, that respect, um, but that intimacy, um, that doesn't come if we don't discipline our children. And we, we see that in the world where they're neglecting the discipline of their children and they don't have that, that fear, that respect. And that just, it really fits in with Job. I mean, that's wholly developing his fear of the Lord through this discipline, through this, um, I mean, not even necessarily discipline, but through suffering and, and drawing him closer to him where he can actually see him because he's gone through the suffering and not just a head knowledge of, of God. Right, right. And one of the attributes or characteristics of the wisdom literature is when it's clear, it almost sounds trite. And that's your starting point. But then... Again, we explore until we come back to what seemed trite and we realize how untrite, how deep and resonant it is. So, like I mentioned in the Proverbs, you know, you think of them as hard candy. You pop them in your mouth and you can almost immediately taste the flavor of a lot of them. There are a few that are enigmatic or paradoxical on purpose, but most of them it's kind of like, duh, yeah. But you're supposed to think about it and bring more and more life experience. Well, in Job, you kind of get a lot of life experience in 42 chapters. So, yeah, I appreciate that. That's a good observation. We, Job is not a book that we can say, oh, I've read that. 
you know, read it a lot and then let it start reading you and then you're going to begin to see it pay its real dividends. Remember C.S. Lewis said one time, he was asked what he thought of a certain book and, and he said, I can't offer an opinion, I've only read it once. <laughs> okay. So, do I have an opinion about Job? No, I've only read it 25 times. Uh, get back to me. <laughs> All right, uh, anything else? Because I am going to let you go five minutes early so that you can go down and smile at uh, Mrs. Molker and say, look at me here, not only on time, but early. And I'm here because the pastor sent me down early. <laughs> By the way, there, uh, there's no malice in this little uh, little jab. Brother, I want to thank you very much for your service to us. And again, sorry, thank you. I want to thank you again very much for your service to us. This is for you from us. It's our love offering. Thank, um, you, thank you all for your very generous giving. That was a wonderful gift. Um, again, for those of you that may have gotten in late, Roger had to step in and take on our entire conference, how much notice did we give you? Three, four weeks? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. 14 teaching sessions, and we are so thankful. And we're also so thankful for the clear teaching from this brother that he's rendered us all over the world, literally, year after year. So I would like to pray for him, pray to close the camp. Thank you all for coming. Again, pack up your stuff before you socialize. We love you, and we hope to see you all next year. Let's pray. Go get your kids before you pack up. Amen and amen. All right. We'll all be in trouble with Lisa. We don't want that. <laughs> our Heavenly Father, I lift up our brother Roger. We're so thankful for the gifts that you have given him, for the mind that you have given him to survey so much material, so much depth that's out there, and then to coalesce it and to bring it forward to us here in these seats through years of experience, through years of teaching. Father, these gifts are of your hand. We are thankful for them. And we're thankful that Roger is faithful to use them for your kingdom and for your glory, as we said, all over the world. We're thankful for all those that have attended this uh, wonderful family camp. Mm -hmm. We're thankful mm -hmm. for the growth, for the experiences. We're thankful for the children, the covenant children tearing around here and that there was no injuries and just joy, joy, joy. Mm -hmm. Father, we ask that you would bless us on our way home, that you would bless us in our congregations and that we would be a light in each individual congregation in which we stand and father that we would take what we've learned here we would take the ways that god has ministered to us here mm. into our congregations for the blessing of those that we serve we pray these things in jesus dear name amen 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 thank